Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. This morning we're going to be starting our new series. And the series is called Greater, in which we'll be exploring the book of Hebrews. I wonder if you're a competitive person. I wonder if the people watching uh, this talk are competitive. Now, there's definitely different types of competitive people. There's the pleasant type of competitive, you know, those that are competitive mainly with themselves. I mean, they're not that bothered as to whether they beat other people, but they just want to beat themselves. And then there's another type of competitive. There's the slightly less pleasant type of competitive, the person who wants to beat everyone in the room. No matter what they're doing, they want to win. They want to come, up on, uh, come out on top. They want to be the best. I'm ashamed to admit something this morning. And what it is that I'm ashamed to admit is I am definitely competitive and I'm definitely the second type of competitive. I don't care whether I beat myself. I don't know if this is a good thing to admit. I care about beating other people. If I'm playing a game of, uh, of tennis, then I want to beat whoever I'm playing against. I don't care if I play better than I normally do or worse. I want to be the winner. Now, this kind of competitiveness is actually quite a dangerous competitiveness because it means that I can be easily wound up. When I was in secondary school, we had a school disco and I heard that there was going to be a dance competition at this school disco. Now, context, I can't dance, but as soon as I heard the word competition, I was all in. I knew, even though I can't dance, that I have to win this competition. Not only was it a chance for me to win something, but it was also a chance for me to be centre of attention. So for me, age 12, doubly perfect. So the week prior to the disco, I started to learn a few dance moves. I mean, I nailed the worm, which is still my go-to dance move. If you don't know the worm, it's the one where you go a bit like that on the floor. Anyway, and then I learned a few breakdancing, well, things that I thought were breakdancing moves. Um, I think in reality, they were very bad breakdancing moves. And I spent time looking up different dance moves and trying to perfect it. I planned my moment. I was going to win this dance competition at the school disco. Now, somehow, everything seemed to go to plan. We got to the disco and the dance competition started and I nailed it. I absolutely smashed it and I ended up winning the dance competition at the year seven disco. In reality, 
I think probably there were only two of us that were lame enough to enter this dance competition. But I wanted to win nonetheless. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, I receive a letter on April the 1st in the post. A letter inviting me as the school champion of the dance competition, the school dance champion of the disco, inviting me to enter a national dance competition. It said that the school had nominated me to be in a national dance competition. In this moment, I forgot the fact that I can't dance and thought, national competition, this is right up my street. So I spent the day planning how I was going to do this. Surely the worm would at least get me into the final of this dance competition. Maybe it wasn't quite enough to win. So I started planning, how can I be the greatest? I got onto YouTube and I was looking up dance moves and practicing them in my room. For the rest of the day, I spent a whole afternoon, the whole afternoon in my room watching clips and trying to learn how to do, how to dance, how to be the best. Now, as you've heard me speak, you may have noticed something that I didn't at the time. In my drive to be the greatest, in my drive to win the competition, I missed the fact that the letter came on April the 1st. My dad, with an awkward grin on his face, knowing that I'd spent the whole day perfecting these dance moves, tiptoes into my room as I was dancing and says, April Fools! Absolute nightmare. I'd been practising all day and he had used the fact that I am far too competitive and I want to be the best. I want to be the greatest to do me on an April Fool's. Absolutely gutting. But it all came from the fact that I wanted to be the greatest. Now we've called this series, this series looking through the book of Hebrews, we've called the series Greater. And that is because the book is all about how Jesus is the greatest and how he is far greater than everything and anyone that has gone before him. And it's not about Jesus striving to be the greatest like I did in this dance competition. It's not a competitive Jesus who can't stand but be the best. But it's about a Jesus who simply is greater than everything. So we're going to be spending the next eight or nine weeks together looking deep into the book of Hebrews and looking at how Jesus is greater. So if we're going to spend such a time looking in this book, I think it's important that we start by getting a bit of context. What is Hebrews about? Who wrote the book of Hebrews and who was, uh, were they writing to? I don't know if you know the author of Hebrews. In fact, 
I know you don't know the author of Hebrews because Hebrews is a bit of a mystery. We don't know the author. Some think it was Paul, but when you look closely, the writing is very different in style, in focus and even in content to what Paul normally wrote. So then some think Barnabas and some think Apollos, but we don't know. What we do know is that the author of the book of Hebrews had a close relationships, uh, had a close relationship with the apostles, who, of course, were very close to Jesus. So we don't know the author, but we also don't know the audience. We don't know who the author was writing to. But we do know some things about them. And we know these things by looking at Hebrews as a whole. As you read through Hebrews, you learn a few things about the audience of the letter. So firstly, we know that the author knows the audience well. The author knows the people he is writing to really well. Secondly, we know that the audience know the Old Testament and the Torah in particular really well also. Thirdly, we know that they are under persecution and possibly even imprisonment because they follow Jesus. And fourthly, it's clear throughout the book that some in this community that the author's writing to, possibly because of persecution, are walking away from their faith. So we can make a couple of assumptions from what we have read, from those four things that we know, we can make a couple of assumptions. Firstly, we can make the assumption that the author is writing to Jewish Christians, which means that they have an understanding of God and they follow the Old Testament principles, uh, for example, the principle of atonement, uh, where animals have to be sacrificed in order to cover sins. But they have also started to follow the way of Jesus and his teachings. So they were uh, born Jews. They'd been Jews and then they decided to follow Jesus. So they were what we call Jewish Christians. We can also make the assumption that one of the purposes of the letter, in fact, one of the main purposes of this letter was to convince the readers to stick with their faith, even in their persecution. And the author approaches this in an interesting way. In order to convince the readers to stick with their faith, the author gives theology of who Jesus is. And the name of theology about Jesus is Christology, basically meaning the study of who Jesus is the study of Christ. So the focus is on who Jesus is. That's the author's focus to convince those reading to stick with Jesus. He focuses on who Jesus is rather than what Jesus did. And as we go through this book, it's important to constantly remind ourselves of the context 
the context of the readers and the context of the reason for the author writing in the style that he writes. The author is writing to people who already believe in God. They have an understanding of who God is. And he's, uh, the author is writing to people who believe the teachings of the Old Testament. And there is an assumption of these beliefs in the writing. But the author wants to argue using Christology as to why Jesus is greater than everything. Their traditions and customs, their ancestors and their prophets, their priests and their leaders, and even the Torah, even scripture and angels. To be honest, it's what I'd call a northern book. And by that, I mean... It's straight talking, straight to the point, and no nonsense. I'd also say there's a slight desperation in the author's tone. There's a desperation in the writing of the author in his attempt to persuade the readers not to give up in their faith. And you can see this quite clearly by how each section is theology followed by a warning. Theology followed by a warning. And these warnings are important. But as we read this, as we read Hebrews, we need to remember the context of the warnings. He's warning people to persuade them. He's warning them away from walking away from Jesus. It's not warnings to make us feel guilty as followers of Jesus but it's warnings not to scare us but to help those who are uh, working out whether to walk away from Jesus to make up that decision. So in conclusion of how uh, he does his intro, in summary of the intro there are two purposes. The first purpose is to elevate Jesus as superior to all. And the second purpose is to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus. So hopefully now you've got an idea of the context of the book, the purpose of the book, and how the readers would have read what is being written. And now we have that context. Let's look at how the author introduces his own letter. So we're going to be looking together at Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three, right at the very start of the letter. If you do have your Bibles with you, that will probably be really helpful today. Um, So why don't you open up at the start of Hebrews as we look quite closely at these opening verses. The letter starts with this great statement. It says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Right from sentence one, the author captures the purpose and the focus of the whole letter. Yes, it is true. God has spoken to you in so many ways, to Moses in the burning bush, to Elijah in the 
small, still voice, to Isaiah in a vision, to Hosea through a family crisis, to Amos through a basket of fruit. But in the last days, simply meaning in the age of the Messiah, he has spoken to us in a far greater way. He has spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us by his son. And it isn't so much that Jesus brought a new and a better message from the father. Instead, it's that Jesus is the message from the father. It isn't that Jesus is simply the latest or the best prophet. Instead, Jesus reveals something that no prophet could. He reveals not just God's message, but his personality. In Jesus, we see the personality of God. Jesus is not the next best thing, the new best thing to tell us about God. He simply is God. And I don't want to dive too deep into that concept right now because actually in Hebrews later on, it goes a bit deeper into this concept and we will pick that up in a few weeks time. But I want to look at the next part of the author's intro to this letter because this next part is one of those parts in scripture where you simply cannot read and skim through. You cannot read the next uh, couple of sentences and then get on with the rest of the book. It is one of those uh, moments of reading scripture where you just have to stop and drink it in. I would say it's one of the most explicit Christology statements in the whole of the Bible. It's one of the best statements about who Jesus is in scripture. There's a trend going around on Facebook at the moment. I don't know if you've seen it, if you're on Facebook. And it's these posts that say something like, comment a description of your job without explicitly saying what you do. Have you seen these? One of my favourite responses to this is from a uni student who replied, I read things that don't matter, then write a paper saying they do matter, in order to one day get a job doing something completely unrelated. I think lots of students and ex-students can relate to that. Well, these couple of sentences in the intro of Hebrews, these couple of sentences that we're about to read are the perfect answer to the question, explain who Jesus is without saying his name. It says this, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This Christological statement sets up the book of Hebrews. 
It's from this exalted view of who Jesus is that the rest of the book sits. Let's put Jesus's name into that statement. Jesus is the appointed heir of all things and through Jesus, the universe was made. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. After Jesus had provided purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. These are some amazing claims about who Jesus is. And because it is the basis of this letter, and also because it's such an incredibly rich description of Jesus, I'm not going to skip over it now. In fact, I don't think it's possible to skip over it and ignore it. Instead, I want to look together at this sevenfold description of who Jesus is. So it says seven things about who Jesus is. Firstly, it claims that Jesus is the heir of all things. This means he has inherited the world and everything within it. He reigns over all and he is preeminent. And it's because of this, because he is the heir uh, over all things, that we can inherit God's kingdom through him. This is the reason why he is the only way to the Father. Secondly, the second statement about who Jesus is found in this intro is that through Jesus, the universe was made. Through Jesus, the universe is made. Jesus is eternal. He always was, he always is, and he will be forever. Jesus himself is the creator of the universe and of the ages. Now, is it just me or is this starting to become a pretty big claim about Jesus? Well, I'm telling you now, it doesn't cool down. The third statement is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The ancient Greek word, which I'm not going to pronounce because I will get it completely wrong, speaks of Jesus as a beam that shines from the source of light. Jesus is the beam of light shining from the glory of God. It's like how we haven't seen the sun Instead, we've seen the rays of light as they come to us. In the same sense, through Jesus, the ray of light, we see God the Father. The fourth statement about Jesus, it goes on to say, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus is the perfect representation of God, a picture of exact likeness. What's God like? Look to Jesus. 
How does God treat people? Look to Jesus. If you want to know anything about God, look to the life of Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Isn't that amazing? Then it says that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. In his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated the power of his word. We saw its power over creation, health and even over death. But this statement isn't just talking about the past. It talks also of the present. Jesus continues to, dis- to sustain all things through his word. Sixth, he, uh, it says that he had provided purification for sin. A better and more literal translation of the original language is he himself purged our sins. So if before we've seen the power of Jesus in the other statements, in this statement, we see his love. He himself purged our sins. And finally, the seventh thing uh, fitted into these couple of sentences about Jesus is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Jesus has the position of majesty, of honour and of glory. He is far above all of creation and Jesus has the victory. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the appointed heir of all things and through Jesus the universe was made. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word and after Jesus had provided purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. (laughs) That isn't a bad CV, hey? I think naturally we tend to focus more on what Jesus has done, what Jesus did in his earthly life. And that makes sense because we want to follow him, right? And if we want to follow him, then we need to know what he did in order to imitate him. And also, I I guess when we look at uh, Jesus' living example, it seems more real, more relevant because we can... um, sympathise with him, with his emotions, with what he went through, with the relationships that he had with people. But when we take a step back and look at who Jesus is, all of his power, his authority, his royalty, that he is creator, that he is sustainer of all and that he is the perfect representation of the father, When we step back and look at this, in this context, with this context of who he is, everything that Jesus did becomes even greater. Do you see what I'm saying? When we understand who Jesus is, then everything he did becomes even 
greater because Jesus gave up his status to be born into creation, his own creation, as a vulnerable baby, as vulnerable as you can get, as powerless as you can be. And then he lived a life that led to the cross. Simply because he longs for a relationship with us so much. Philippians 2 verses 6 to 8 puts it absolutely perfectly. And I know many of us would have heard these verses before, but I just think they explain this so well. It says this, talking of Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. This is what the author of Hebrews wants to portray right at the start of his letter. Jesus is so great. He is powerful. He is majestic. He is the ruler. He is creator. He is the perfect representation of who God is. Yet, he loves you so much. So he's saying to the audience... He's saying to the Jewish Christians in the book of Hebrews, those who are enduring persecution, he is saying to them, he is so worth it. Stick with your faith. Submit to him and know that he is Lord. Maybe God is speaking those same words to some of us here today. What an amazing and challenging introduction to what is a brilliant letter, the letter of Hebrews. Let's pray. Father, when we think of who Jesus is, when we think of what he did for us, but not only what he did, but who he is, Lord, we can only be in awe. We can only be in awe. The only response is to bow down and to worship you. Lord, we thank you that you are such a good God. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he is the exact representation of God. Jesus, thank you that although you are so powerful, that you are uh, so majestic, that you are the creator of all things, you humbled yourself to become one of us, to become a baby, to become so vulnerable because you long for relationship with us. And Lord, I want to pray for anyone struggling today anyone struggling with their faith, anyone who's wrestling with whether they can continue to follow uh, Jesus. And Lord, I just want to pray that you will fall on them by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you will 
show your power, show your might, but Lord, we pray you show your love. Holy Spirit, will you come and fill anyone and everyone watching this morning that we will have a fresh revelation of your glory. And Lord, I pray as we read uh, through the book of Hebrews, as we look at it over the next few weeks, Lord, that you will show us just how great Jesus is. May we never lose the wonder of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.